Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. It's time to cast off on a new adventure. This is Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Hello and welcome to Real Adventures from wherever you are listening right around the country. Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hapgood joining you this morning to talk all things fishing, boating and the great outdoors. Redmond, we had the 100 year storm last weekend. It's been a beautiful <laughs> week though. Off the back of that massive swell, it's been sensational. Yeah, it's been warm but windy as well, Pat. Good morning to everyone that's uh, listening this morning. It's uh, It's been very windy and I've got a question for you. I was going to say to you this morning, I was going to actually ask you before we went on air, but I thought I'll let everyone actually have a laugh at me because I might be onto something here. All right. I'm ready for this. Yeah, I am. Now, during the week we had a northerly wind that was picking up at around that 25 knots to 30 knots. Mm-hmm. And then the next day we had a westerly wind, pretty much due west, around that 25 to 30 knots. But I'm telling you right now, it felt windier on the day that was Wesley, not the Norlier. Is it true? Like, am I making this in my head, making this up in my head that some days the wind feels thicker than other days? (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. Like, mate, I played uh, a VFL practice match at Deakin Reserve last week, and the wind felt thick. (laughs) It was about 80 kilometres an hour. I've never played anything like it. It was Welcome to uh, outside of the grandstand, Patrick. <laughs> Welcome to local footy. Welcome to local footy. No, I often think that. And I mean, you, you talk about it a lot when you talk about um, getting your, your fishing info, whether it be, um, you know, the boys, what location that you're actually searching Cape, to find at, out tides capes, and capes all that and sort stuff. of things. Yeah, making it specific. But yeah, it, it certainly doesn't always, I don't think it always lines up. Hey, we, we spoke about Tassie last week. And how incredibly well it's fishing. Still fishing fantastic. Off the back of that, um, social me- media lit up again. And there, I think there was 155 kilo bluefin tuna caught. But South Australia's making a bit of a push for phenomenal fishing at the moment because you name it, they're catching it. Yeah, it is. And this is actually a really good time to head to South Australia. So you've got places, for example, and the reason I say this is because I've been there. Tumby Bay, I went there in April a few years ago. Kingfish, sharks. Trevally that aren't Trevally, they're silver Trevally, but they're like, I'm used to like 45 centimetre Trevally. These things like nearly a metre bloody long, <laughs> like massive, yeah. massive silver Trevally, insane size. And that was out of the Green Islands and stuff, so that was really cool to go to. But also you've got places like the Air Peninsula, that is gonna, it's going to be off fishing off its head. This time of the year, the, people often um, talk about New Zealand and big kingfish and whatnot, but... They're getting like 20 kilo kingfish out of there. It's massive. Underrated as well, isn't it? Underrated. And you've done a lot more fishing in South Australia than I have. But uh, like the the tuna fishery is sensational. And that's the run of fish that sort of comes into Victoria. Uh, So whatever is sort of happening now um, out of Port Lincoln and whatnot, that's going to make their way down towards, I guess, Portland, where Chris Vasilevsky, who we had on the show last week, spoke about waiting for those fish to come down the coast. Um, and like I said, the, those, those tuna are in really, really good numbers, but the Samson fish, and that was the fish that I always wanted to catch as a kid. Watching Paul Worsling on iFish was where I where I've always, I watched all my shows as a kid growing up, and um, to be friends with him now is bloody awesome, but to watch what he did back in the day. For some reason, me and my brother Cameron always were like, Samson fish, Samson fish. And I finally caught one out of Tumby Bay, but out of Air Peninsula as well. They're big Samson fish. Like, they're massive fish. Like How did you target them when you fish for them? It's crazy. It's uh, so many different ways. We got them on 
knife jigs, what and um, which was really fun. But what I found fascinating was before because we did a we stayed on the boat out at the islands there, and then we headed to this lump they called it, which was a little bit. We were fishing with uh, a guide over there who does what I do basically t- takes you to the area and teaches you how to fish, fish. that area. Yep. And but the day before, because like I said, we stayed on the boat, we did our live bait collecting, and we had just small. 45 centimetre King George Whiting for live bait. <laughs> so it was literally anything we could catch that was live, that was legal to keep, obviously, yep. went down for bait. And what's, they did um, not give a crap what they were eating. What's, what's kingfish per kilo at the moment? Is it oh, like, it'd be dear. Oh, I actually don't know. So the world's most expensive live bait? Oh, King George Whiting, you mean? King yes, George Whiting, yeah, sorry. sorry. King George Whiting in South Australia, I think it was three weeks ago. It was, I don't know... I think we spoke about it. it was $101 a kilo. So you've got basically a $100 piece of bait that you just... <laughs> just dropped in the water. For a Samson fish that doesn't taste as good as we the rele- bait We released them. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, they, they do pull hard. In, and in saying, talking about pulling hard, um, I think a kingfish will pull a Samson fish backwards with ease. Samson fish go very hard early where they sort of tend to roll up in the end. They start to... I don't know if their swim bladder goes because... Uh, a bit that, like Murray Cod. Yeah, they go hard at the hard start, early, and, and then you've got a the paper end, bag. They're a pig of a thing. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. Where the kingfish, they don't give up. They just go and go and go. So, yeah, South Australia's fishing well. What, what, are you, what would you be targeting this time in the year, South Australia? You obviously live there for a period of time. The snapper fisheries, obviously not really, um, can't really do that at the moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a big disappointment. Oh, for me, it was always Victor Harbour. I love fishing off Victor because it was, you know, 45 minutes to the south, launch at the boat ramp, and then it's a bit like, when the tuna are around the, the entrance to Port Phillip Bay or they're around Barwon Heads, they're really close to the boat ramp. Yep. I fished there with, with Shane Mensforth, um, you know, numerous times and it was literally, you know, a cane and a half from the boat ramp, bang, onto them. And the wilder the weather, the better the fishing. Yeah, well, that's like what, it was yeah. just... And the wilder the weather, you get them really close to the ramp, would fish there when it was... Beautiful oh. conditions, and it was just it was really hard work. Yeah, yeah, because obviously everyone was fishing in close, and I think that's. And you often talk about this. This is. That, well, we're this, going to talk about it in a minute. Regard, we're going to be talking about chasing barrel bluefin. It's a, yeah, and, and this is the the big challenge for anyone fishing in new locations, is to do the research beforehand. So you've got more than just follow, you know, boats within five k of the boat ramp. It's to do your work, so you've actually got different places you can actually go and chase them because you've you know you've understood that this is where there's relatively consistent captures. Whether it was you know historical info over the last couple of years, this has worked, and and that's obviously you know the catalogue of information that you have yourself when yep. you go down and fish off Portland. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to, like I said, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I did this week with the fishing and what's actually biting around at the moment. But we're going to get into a little bit of detail about the barrel bluefin. But the weather's changed, Pat. Uh, so what I mean by that is once the weather changes, our currents change. So it does make fishing a little bit tougher this time of the year. So 16 degrees I had on my sonar during the week, and that was 18 and a half before that, what was that storm you called before? Hundred year storm. Hundred year storm. That's what we had last week. So <laughs> eleven and a half meters, biggest swell on record last weekend uh, since two thousand and eleven. So that's a big, big swell. Warnable got smashed. Like well, the whole boat uh, facilities broken. Like yeah, there were boats towing. Oh, not boats. Jet skis towing in right up and down the coast. It was. Yeah. It was pretty incredible to see. Not we'll see. But and the pilot boats didn't even go out, you said. Oh, I don't think they did one stage. I'm not actually, yeah, the, to watch the spirit of Tasmania go through on that footage, I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> I tell you what, like, I actually would be the person to pay to go on that over there. I reckon it would be 
it'd be amazing to see what actually the ocean can do. Safe. It's obviously safe. They're not going to do the trip if it's not, so it's going to be safe. But I feel sorry for 96% of the passengers that would probably have their head between their legs spewing the whole time. <laughs> but one thing it did do, that storm that you're talking about, Paddy, it just smashed, uh, stirred the whiting up, smashed the banks. The whiting fishery from now on is sensational. It is going to be red hot. And this is my favourite time of the year to chase them. But I did have a look for a bluefin tuna. Uh, I think it was on Tuesday. I went out and we had that northerly wind, straight northerly. It was quite warm, actually, like you said earlier. And I did, oh, kilometres. And I did not yep. see any life out there. So they could be... I said to you, it's only a matter of time to see what happens. I think they will go. They're not there in their numbers, 100%, because I yep. checked all the areas they've been in. They weren't there. They might be somewhere, but a small pot, pa- uh, small patch of them, but they weren't out there. So if you are going out there... And when you don't have 12 hours in order to go out and search for 100%, them... 100%. Yep. Even consecutive days to say, right, for example, Chris Vasilevsky from Gone Fishing Charters might be out, and I might say, you go that way and cover those depths, and I'll go the other way, where no one was out on the day because it was, it was actually nice out there. But, yeah, the, I've never seen water in 70 metres... Green. When I say green, it wasn't even green. It was more Murray River. 70 metres of yep. water, Pat. I don't know. I kept. We don't get a lot deeper at it than 70 metres outside of the heads right through to Tasmania. There's a few slightly deeper spots. Yep. But I'm not joking. I went out to 70. I think we got to that 74 metres at one stage, and I couldn't see blue water. It looked as if you were still at the bluff with the green water. Like There yep. was no difference in it. It was. So I don't know if that's got a massive factor, but one thing I do know, that water's going to get pushed in the heads. The whiting, whiting are going to go nuts. If I'm chasing the calamari with the kids on a weekend, um, for example, tomorrow or today, I'd be definitely targeting that outgoing tide, letting the dirty water come out of the bay and fish in the last hour while these tides are big. And there's plenty of um, calamari around and jump on the white in the next start of the next tide. Australian salmon, they've been fishing pretty well. And, and don't did you see that one a quarter in the week? I did. <laughs> they don't necessarily need the clean conditions that other species do. Well, Certainly those that are more finicky like tuna. Um, fishing right up, uh, fishing really well right up and down the coast. They are, and Karayo Key in Geelong there, I was speaking to Robbie actually on the way in here, he was on the way to start his morning shift, and he said to me that there's massive schools of them in Geelong there in the Karayo Key, which is really good. I have never caught salmon in 68 metres of water before in my life on the surface. I don't know why they're out there. Probably to get away from the swell on the inshore beaches yep. over the weekend that the week just had just passed. 69 cent. I couldn't get... I wanted a bloody to be 70. I stretched it as much as I could. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a salmon bigger than that. 69 centimetres. And we got... We could have caught a million of them. We were yep. obviously looking for tuna. There's a few birds working. We pulled through and the salmon were, were there. But now that the swell has dropped... Well, it's come back up a little bit now, but when it dropped right along the surf beaches, I know that there's a really good report with that northerly wind on the Tuesday when I fish out of Lawn. They got some really beautiful uh, salmon off the beach there too. We're seeing them all the time. Yeah. Like literally those schools pop up and then you're chasing those deeper water channels off the beach and bait or lure, I still prefer lure to use, but they're, they're plentiful right up and down the coast. Uh, barrel bluefin tuna, Pat, we're going to talk a bit about that and I'm going to get you one this year. Um, we're going to cancel footy for a week or if you get rubbed out again in a couple of days. I've had time. a cancel for three weeks, mate. <laughs> we are, we're going to get to talk about the barrel bluefin and the reason we're going to speak about this is because Pork McDonald during the, earlier in the week saw the first barrel to come out of the southwest this season. I think it was 120-odd kilo. Big fish. Uh, there's so many different things you need to do to be actually in the right place, the right time, using the right things. So first of all, we're going to talk about what to actually look for. 
And it's the birds, but it's the right birds. You want to follow the gannets. In the morning, the gannets will all push one way, Pat. You'll watch them, and they'll push. And you follow those gannets, and they will take you to roughly where the feed's going to be for the day. They're not out there. To, they're out there looking, but they sort of, they've got a fair idea where they're going. So, Are you better off waiting for... So once you've found the birds, yep. all right, we're, we're travelling in the direction that they're going, and then all of a sudden either they stop or they're sitting, sitting in sort of one yep. location. Are you better off waiting for them to get fishing versus being impatient, all right, we're going to go try and find a school elsewhere? Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really good question. And quite often when a bird's sitting on the water, they're waiting. They're, if, you go, if you sound over them, like even go through the middle of them, they're going to have something underneath them. It'll be bait. There'll be yeah. bait underneath them. They are waiting. It's just bait that's too deep for them to get, and then they, they need the fish to push them up. Yeah, well, they need the seals, the dolphins, and whatnot to push them up. And a big factor with birds, gannets are the ones that you're pretty much going to get your barrel bluefin off a lot of the time. 90% of the time are going to be gannets. Yep. But a dead giveaway for barrel bluefin tuna, and I'd, I, there wouldn't be many times I've gone over a patch and not had marked barrels up or caught them, would be seals. Seals are the go-to. They always hang out with the, with the barrels, the big barrels, and you can see them, like they're dipping and diving. like They're out of the water and they're like up and down like a wave, like constantly up and down, diving in and out quickly and it's when they're stationary is when you don't want to they're just waiting or they're just relaxing you need them dipping and diving amongst those birds and i'll nearly guarantee you that there will be a barrel under them so that's another really important factor so sometimes dolphins will round up bait and the barrels won't often always be with the dolphins so that's 50 50 where the seals i'd say 90 percent of the time when the fish are there so what i mean by that is you're not just going to rock out there tomorrow and see seals and expect there to be well, when I say tomorrow, probably a few weeks ago, the middle of summer, the barrels aren't here. So that's what I mean by that. We're yep. in barrel season. In season, the things are there, the fish are there. That's what you want to find. You also need to work out how many uh, lures you want to run. I like to start with four. If I can see in the water what the bait they're actually feeding on, I'll put a fifth one out and favour that colour lure. So, for example, if it's red bait or slimy, that is really important. And also follow the reports like I give you and Salt Guide and social media. There's so many dead giveaways of what's been the lure's been working the best. And quite often, that just comes back to what bait they're feeding on. Also, you need to uh, work out your conditions. If you go there to Portland, say, tomorrow, Pat, on a five-knot wind, there might be 30 or 40 boats chasing those barrel bluefin. And like you spoke about, about Victor Harbour, um, when you go out there on a calm day, there's a lot of boats, the fish are harder to catch. So I like to fish them when it's rough versus calm. Not only do they fish, uh, feed a lot better in the rough, and when I say rough, I'm not talking... Ridiculous perfect weather. storm what we had on the yep. weekend. You're not doing that. It's stupid. You're going out there. You're picking your offshore. I like that 15 to 18 knot northerly wind where a lot of boats don't tend to go out. Portland, you're always going to have a bit of swell. So that two to three metre swell up to four metres, don't get too much more than that. Quite often, minimal boats, you might only have five to ten boats out instead of 40. And that there can be the difference in actually landing a fish. You want to trawl at roughly 10 kilometres, give or take. But on those calmer days, you want to make sure your lures are working. Don't trawl at 10 kilometres and have your lure not popping the surface and doing what it's meant to be doing. You want to create a bit of... Havoc with the with the lures yep. themselves. So to pick your bring speed. Them up. Yep, pick your speed up a bit. And I think a big factor, because uh, we are running out a little bit of a time here, but a big factor is just learning to uh, rig your own lures. That's really important because I don't trust a lot of people. Um, well, even anything my, that's bought off the shelf. Yeah, you just don't know or, who's done yep. it. And the last one, Pat, I'm going to throw it in there. If you want a barrel, commit to it. Don't all of a sudden. Go. I'm going to go chase a barrel. Then three hours in, you'll go. Oh, let's go for a school shark or or, or a school tuna. Or you haven't seen anything because yep. you haven't seen anything. If you want a barrel, you've got to commit the whole bloody day. If you want to catch something else, the best way to do it is get your. And people will go. You get back to the ramp, and someone will go. Oh, they come on in the afternoon. You're like, oh crap! I was drifting for a pinky. Like commit when you do get that fish. Then 
you can go do what else you wanted to in the afternoon or the next day. And we do that a lot. Some days we go there in the rough, we get one on the first day. What do you want to do in the morning? Let's go catch a massive Portland Whiting in the morning. We don't want to go back out there and get beaten around again all day. So that there is another really important factor to learning a big barrel bluefin tuna. We've got a massive show of real adventures coming your way. Plenty more after the break. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. Before we get into the social club, we were talking about Samson fish in our first segment, Redmond, yep. and there was a Samson fish which was originally caught and tagged off Shell Harbour in 2019. It's been recaptured. It was tagged at 70 centimetres and 4 kilos. Um, and at the end of Feb this year, it was caught and tagged again, so nearly three years later. It's travelled over 500 k's from where it was first caught at Coffs Harbour to where it is now, and 95 centimetres, so nearly a, nearly a metre long, and 7.5 kilo. Pretty impressive growth rates. Yeah, and it's, yeah, that is really impressive growth rate. It's a, it's a, obviously, a, they eat a lot of food, as they do eat my King George Whiting as I drop it down to it in South Australia. <laughs> but it's something that I really want to get into. Um, I've never been into tagging fish, and the reason for that is I just, like, it's more like your competition stuff, like marlin, you've always got your flags and whatnot, and I think of it, <coughs> excuse the me. The data that you get from it, this is where I, yeah, it is quite fascinating. And that's, yeah, I a, don't, a whiting or a um, or an amberjack or a Samson fish. It isn't as sexy as a marlin is to tag, but the the data itself, I would is love fascinating for us as recreational anglers, and no doubt for for whether it's New South Wales fisheries, um, big fisheries, you know every fishing body right around Australia. It's still really interesting data. As you know, I don't keep a hell of a lot of fish myself to eat. I'm not, I do like eating my fish, but I'm not a massive fish eater. Like, for example, I've bought four bags of... I bought 40 fillets for yourself to take home to your family, King George Whiting, today. The boys have taken half of them. Yeah, I know, bloody Joel's raided the fridge. But you, um, you have, um, you've also got your tagging of fish in Port Phillip Bay. Now, I'm saying all the fish that I catch, I've only ever captured one species that I've, that's been tagged, and it was a crayfish. It was tagged under the under the stomach there, the little green tag, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it had moved. I think it had moved. Oh crap! Well, I have it written down at home. In, at home, I think it was only a couple hundred meters, and it was like five years, yeah, and it hadn't grown stuff all. Like it yep. hadn't grown. It hadn't grown much at all. Obviously, very slow growing uh, species. But I would love to get involved more in the tagging because the amount of fish that I release, I don't release whiting and flooded the people, the, the stuff that my family and you guys do enjoy eating. But all the tuna, I pretty much release them. Yep. Big gummy sharks, I release them. Sharks, I release a lot of them. And I'm happy to go out and catch a hundred whiting in the day and tag a hundred whiting and see what happens. That'd be bloody awesome to do. I'd be yeah, it'd be good fun. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's something that I reckon we could, we could probably get myself involved in, Patrick. Let's get into the social club. We'll take your questions from social media. Make sure you send in your questions because we're giving away a real brand fishing top and hat every week. Oh, we? We are for the next month, so shooting your questions. Uh, the first one is from David. G'day, Red. I would love to know what you look for and how you go about pumping bass yabbies. So we often talk about how important it is the selection of baits that you use. Yep. There's nothing that beats fresh bait. That's that's clear. Bass yabbies, what are you looking for when you're – is it certain beaches? Is it tidal? Is it, you know, close to inlets and estuaries? What are you searching for? Yeah, it's what in, inlets and estuaries are a really good place to start. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Western Port in this too because I know Gwaine Blake on all – 
obviously watch the tides in Western Port or you end up on the bank like Craig on Sol- posted a photo on Salt Cod a few weeks ago. Was yeah. that Craig? Craig po- no, he didn't get stuck. He posted the photo. Gotcha. <laughs> it was um, no, it wasn't Craig. And We've all been there. Have we? Well, up north, I have been. <laughs> up north. <laughs> up north. West, <laughs> Western Port, for those who don't know, Western Port's tide changes dramatically. Like it's not like Port Phillip Bay. There's not really a bank in Port Phillip Bay you probably will get stuck on, but Western Port, you could be fishing in three metres of water and all of a sudden you could be high and dry on land. So it's a, it's a place you need to watch out for. And the bass yabbies that Gwaine gets on all the banks are crazy in Western Port. And that Western Port isn't actually a bay. So it's actually a port. Like it's yep. So that's yep. – Port Phillip Bay have them also. Um, you can find a lot of sandbars for them. I find they like that muddier sort of ground rather than that super clean sand. I find, like, for example, the Bowen River isn't super clean underneath. It's still nice, relatively nice sand, but it's got that muddier texture to it rather than that super clean ocean Crisp. sand. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so Bowen River in the estuaries there. Port Arlington up near the piers, some fantastic spots. And there's also plenty of sandbars right through Port Phillip Bay. And there's a bit of a trick what you need to look for. You want to look for the holes – uh, they're probably, I guess, the size of your fingernail and your pointer finger, probably around that big, and they um, five cent coin roughly. And you want to look for those. And I like to find them when there's a few together. Yeah. So not one in a random spot, but you pump in that area, and quite often you can pump out of all the holes. And you'll see as you pump them, the, all the holes around also get sucked out because somehow they join underneath. And you can pull out three or four or five yabbies in one go. Now you need a pump, a good bast- a good uh, bait pump. But one thing that comes in handy. Don't tell Bunnings I told you this, but nick off nick a, nick a Bunnings basket because they work really well. The water and the sand fall through the holes and the bass yabbies don't fit. So instead of having to filter through the mud on the ground, you actually put your shopping basket next to you and you pump the mud into there and you just shake the basket a little bit and then the yabbies sit in there and the mud and the, the water actually come out of your Bunnings basket. I love it when you promote thievery on this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can buy a sift from the supermarket. It's, there, it's there, a little bit easier. That, that's a legal comment. I you, like it. Use the Bunnings. It's heaps easier. <laughs> Uh, what's up next? I think uh, Josh. Josh, I got a question for you. I think from Josh. Uh, inboard versus outboard uh, motors, Patrick. Um, what would you choose? I have an older inboard Bertram. Is it worth putting outboards on? We love talking about old boats on this. You show, love Bertrams. Redmond. I do love Bertrams, and you see on social media where it's the the old school um, uh, Haynes sort of websites on Facebook and all those sorts of things where people love buying old boats and restoring them. I think one of the things when it comes to buying an old boat is it's going to basically cost you the same as to do it properly. It's going to cost you basically the same as a as a almost brand new boat. But I suppose it's the journey, the experience, and the. And I imagine how fun it would be scratching fiberglass off your body for twelve hours after your fiberglass. Well, you say that, but hundreds and hundreds of people, <laughs> oh, thousands <laughs> in Australia, do it every year. But getting back to your to your question, Bertrams were originally designed for inboard, so the weight. Um, this, the displacement and where the weight sits in the boat has been designed around heavy inboard engines, particularly those boats that are built in the sort of late 70s, early 80s and 90s. They're all built for inboards. So if you are to put a pod on the back of a Bertram, well, you still need to manipulate the weight of the boat itself or have like a self-flooding, um, not keel, but almost the the pot itself would be self-flooding, so at least it, it fills up with water and then you can sink those outboards down um, a little bit lower. So I'm sort of always a bit reticent to putting you know, lighter engines on older boats that were designed for weight. It'll perform better with an inboard, but that being said, everything now is heading towards outboards, whether it be size, but construction, the the tech in outboards is, is phenomenal. So... 
I'd, I'd probably go towards an outboard if you want like for like and probably a more cost effective outcome. It's almost going the inboard. I'd, I'd love to have an, I'd love to have a Bertram twenty six twenty eight around that left up the New South Wales coast because um, of Flybridge. You can get up on the Flybridge yep. to see the Marlin, and I'd like two twin outboards on it. Well, my you buy me one of those. Please? I had a smuggler. <laughs> I had a smuggler six point three, and they had a five point seven liter Merc Cruiser in it. And it was such a good performing boat. It had the extra weight of the inboard. It was designed for an inboard. It was. What about extending the fuel tank into that area? To yeah, you can. Be, well, you absolutely. But at some stage, you're going to drain that fuel tank, yep. and at rest, you're going to have issues. Yep. Hook, line, and sinker. Who's a, who's a great? Uh, they, we've had the guys on the show before. Um, wonderful show. Really Probably interesting guys. On again. Yeah, they, they've done some some really fascinating project boats with Bertrams, and they found the same thing. They ended up um, flooding the the pod system that they had because it was just too much. Uh, it was just too light, and it just rocked far too much. What you can add now is the Sea Keeper yep. um, gyrospheres, yep. which are Expensive. They reckon they're bloody great, though. but sensational. Yeah. yeah, all the all the data I've seen on them. I've been on one boat with it. It is amazing. I've had someone but tell it me expensive. it's actually helped stop seasickness. Well, it makes sense. Mm. The boat's not going to move as much, but it is it is a a costly um, yeah, addition to a trailer boat. But I tell you what, if you're going to spend a lot of time on the water, we all know what boat means. Bring out another <laughs> thousand. Before um you ask the next question, can you say dancing for me? Dancing. I thought you might have said dancing. Because you said Bertram. 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 Next question. <laughs> I'm king of the castle. Samantha. <laughs> Hi, guys. I love fishing. Aaron always talks about dirty water for whiting, but I have trouble telling the difference in Port Phillip Bay where I fish um, when it's windy. How do I tell? You need to get a good set of glasses. That plays a massive role. And in you're it. not being facetious here. No, no, that's it. it yep. it's, it's, you need to get a polarised. I, I, I wear the Tonic brand and I love my brand of Tonics. If you want a brand to go check even out. On the, even on the, the cloudier days, it's you, important. It's the most important attribute to my fishing. And I've actually did a post on social media a few weeks ago about actually putting my glasses in front of my camera and the wee beds to show the difference, what you could see. Uh, whatever you can see with your eyes in the water, times it by 100,000 when you put a decent pair of glasses out there and like I said Tonic's the brand that I've chosen to wear over the years and years they're a fantastic brand you've got you've got uh, Mako you've got Spotters you've got Costas you've got Maui there's so many different brands out there to go try what you like for yourself but I can't speak highly of my sonnies it's caught not only will you be able to see the ground better and through the water better and to work out because when you've got waves breaking Pat you get glare as well in between each wave so that's why it's hard to see it actually takes all the glare out not only are you going to be easy to see it's going to catch you so many more fish because when you're winding that whiting in and I've actually got a story about this we'll say after the next segment when you're winding a whiting in and a squid chases it you, a lot of the time without sunnies you won't see that squid yep. where the sunnies you can see it you can see metres and metres in front of it, into yeah. the water. So, uh, yeah, I'd be definitely getting a, 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 a new pair of uh, sunnies. Uh, our winner, Redmond, for the real brand I'm fishing gone. top and hat. Bass Yabbies. Bass Yabbies. David, well done, David. Uh, send us a direct message and we'll send out to you a real brand David, fishing David, top. David Johnson as well. We didn't say his last name. David Johnson, you David said the John- question. It might be Dave Johnson from the footy club. Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> Dave, well done, mate. You've won yourself a real brand fishing top and hat. That was the social club. Make sure you're sending your questions. We're giving away um, real brand fishing gear every week from now until the end of next month. Stick around. There's plenty more real adventures after the break. 
You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for All Aboard. Our special guest this morning is Gavin Hurley from Gavin uh, from Hurley's Fly Fishing. Rather, thanks for joining us this morning, Gav. Really appreciate your time. Excellent, Alan and Pat. Yeah, lovely to uh, be on your show. Now, this has been driven um, primarily from my father, who loves coming into your shop. It might be the one and, show that he listens to. <laughs> and, talk, <laughs> and talking about all things fly fishing, picking your brain. For, for those who aren't aware of Hurley's Fly Fishing, tell us about it and how it all started. Yeah, well, it was, I'd, um, I was always into fishing as a kid. You know, like um, grew up in the country down in, in Hamilton. And there's not a lot to do. You just go fishing and, and go hunting is about all you do in the bush. And I'd always spent my life like spinning for redfin and then Lake Hamilton and trout and that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until I learned to fly fish when I was about 21. And that was the end of me. I just literally fell in love with it overnight and wanted to make it literally my whole life. So I set up uh, the business Hurley's uh, Fly Fishing about 25 years ago. And we're just starting to get the hang of it now, which is all pretty good. <laughs> so what do you actually do at Hurley's Fly Fishing? Because so it's more than just a, a retail shop. That's right. It? Yeah, yeah. It depends who you ask. A lot of the people think I don't really work very much at all. And, uh, <laughs> I just cruise around and have fun. But, uh, um, yeah, at Hurley's, I, I guess we're a little bit different in that we don't just sell fly fishing gear. Um, we have all the brands and you sell all the, the gear and waders and boots and all that sort of stuff. But we do a lot of... I guess beginner courses, we want to teach people how to do it properly and how to do it successfully. So we do, we probably put about 300 people through beginner courses and teach them how to cast and how to read rivers and what flies to use and all that. And then also go one step further and take them on stream craft days and, and just teach them the knack of fly fishing so that when they do it by themselves, they enjoy it and they know what they're doing and they're half a chance to be successful. So that's been a, a major part of our business sort of going forward over the last few years as well. Do you think once people sort of get into it and start to learn it, they they realise it's it's not quite as hard as what they first perceived it to be and, and quite often with people that I speak to when I talk about fly fishing and they sort of ask about it, and I'm by no means a, a professional, um, but it, it, it has a... There's a, um, almost a mystery about it that it, it's harder than it actually is and it's far more, I've found it far more enjoyable because you can get the satisfaction from a cast, not even necessarily catching a fish. Absolutely. I mean, I think it looks, it looks beautiful when you see somebody who can cast. They look very artistic and I think we perceive that to be, oh, that's too hard to even go down that path. But you ideally, if I gave you a left-hand set of golf clubs and you never knew how to, to do it, that would be extremely difficult. But if you had a coach there at the start and he gave you a right-hand set, you go, actually, this is not as hard as what I thought. And it's the same with fly fishing. And I think you, you're much better off um, to have somebody to show you. And we, we our beginner courses, for example, we, we spend one hour and everybody knows how to cast within one hour. And they're, they're casting good enough to catch fish. So... It's like, I guess, playing golf with a pro with you, and if you do something wrong, he can fix it straight away. And within an hour, you're casting good enough to catch fish. And uh, it literally is that fast. So uh, I, I, once somebody shows you, and uh, I think that's why we've got so many people into fly fishing now and doing it properly, 
um, because we've showed them how to do it properly at the start. It's a bit like that left-handed screwdriver that they haven't bought out for me, Patrick. I'm not saying bring it out. Now, you've got a, I'm on the uh, hurleysflyfishing.com.au website, and you yeah. just spoke about your beginner's course, and I'm, I'm tipping there's a few advanced advanced options on, on the website that I can see here. You've got trips to Christmas Island, New Zealand, and so many other different options there. Take us through what's included in those. Yeah, well, that, that was, was something, I guess we started that, we started going to New Zealand about 20 years ago, and we'd go there and catch, you know, stacks of fish, and we'd tell people in the shop when we get back, and they'd go over and do it and fish for a week and get three, and we just couldn't understand, but it was mainly because no one had showed them how to fish properly, and New Zealand is so different, for example, so we just started uh, essentially taking people over to show them how to fish it better, uh, and then that sort of snowballed from there to now that I spend about four months, you know, sometimes five months a year, usually, um, apart from that COVID word, but in New Zealand uh, on these trips and we teach people how to fish and the fishing's outstanding in New Zealand. So we've got another shop over there and we've got a couple of, uh, couple of houses where we accommodate our trips and they're absolutely amazing. So that's why New Zealand is, is just massive because it is the best in the world. Uh, we absolutely love that. But we also do trips to Christmas Island, which is your bone fishing and uh, sailfish and your GTs and all that sort of stuff that's in between Fiji and Hawaii. So it's literally in the most amazing part of the world um, and you just have to go fly fishing every day. So it's a, it's a pretty tough gig to, uh, to do that one. <laughs> You're listening to Real Adventures. We're chatting to Gavin Hurley from Hurley's Fly Fishing. You, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, that's been... Um, it's been quite restricting in, in pr- everything that we're doing a, at the moment. A prick is the word you're looking for. <laughs> um, let's talk more national-based, so Australia. Yep. Where are the places that you you enjoy fishing locally? Because at the moment that's sort of all our options are um, that aren't necessarily always sort of publicised because Tassie for me is one of, the, one of the, the gems of Australia, but we don't always look to go there because it's Queensland or it's you know, far northern New South Wales, we look to go to sort of warmer climates. But when it comes to, to fishing and fly fishing, Tassie's a great place as well. Yeah, Tassie is the best in the world. Like, I, I, I genuinely rate New Zealand the best for wild fish. You know, I mean, you go to, you know, places like England and you walk up these rivers that you're paying 400 quid for a day to fish and they're all stock fish. So straight out of a trout farm and they just, you know, and they catch them and whatever. I think New Zealand's the best, and when it's fishing well, Tasmania is on a par with that. I think Tasmania is outstanding. It's different than what New Zealand is, but it's world class. Um, when the weather's good, <laughs> it, it really is brilliant. And if you go down there on the wrong weather pattern, it, you might as well be trying to fish in Antarctica because it <laughs> is one of the worst in the world. So you've just got to you've got to time it, and you've got that's what fishing's about as well. It is. A, being lucky, um, and when the fishing's good, you've got to get on and, and down there. But I think, Tassie, I, mean, I go there every year uh, and spend a week or two because it really is amazing. And the sight fishing aspect, and I think that's one of the things that you enjoy so much about fly fishing is because it's all sight-based. So you'll see a fish, cast to it and catch it, or cast to it and even scare it, and you go, well, that was pretty good because you've always got targets. And I think that's the exciting thing rather than, you know, putting a worm on a hook and throwing it out, falling asleep, and you may or may not catch a fish. So I think that's the real draw card of fly fishing, to be able to see what happens. Speaking of the bait, um, what's the balance between persisting with, 
you know, a, a certain fly versus, all right, it's, it's time to change. Because obviously one of the, the most enjoyable parts of fly fishing is actually seeing the fish. So you can see where it is and you can see that it's either interested in the fly or it's not. If it's not, how quickly do you look to change fly and, and try and um, match the hatch, Patrick, it just depends how quick the beers are melting. Are the ice is melting around the beers. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> Well, that's another thing about fly fishing. You have to delay your drinking a little bit <laughs> to fly fish and drink. So, you know, it's virtually a health uh, time, you know, So until you finish fishing and then it changes. But as far as flies, I mean, I, like in the shop, I'm just walking past how many flies we've got now. We've probably got, you know, six, seven, eight hundred different flies, which is all well and good, but I'll use probably the same six flies everywhere in the world. Yep. So. At times you get there and it can be really daunting and you go, oh, geez, which fly do I use and whatever. But again, I just use the same six. I do vary sizes though. So that's the biggest thing. But say if um, you see a fish and he comes up and looks at your fly, say if it's a dry fly, so one floating on the surface comes up and looks at it and then turns away, doesn't eat it. Because like trout in particular are like Labradors. They're going to eat whatever's on offer, you know, so... If it's a, you know, the Seagull McDonald's, if it's a chip or a hamburger, they're generally going to eat it. So if they decide not to eat it, there's something wrong with that fly. And quite often it's too big and it seems a bit unnatural. So you, that's when I'll change fly. Once they've decided, no, they don't want to eat it, I'll change fly and I'll go down, generally go down in size. So I might use, say, a size um, 12, which is, you know, say a fly that's maybe one and a half centimetres. And if they reject that, then I'll put something on that might be, half a centimetre, and then they generally just eat that straight away. So, yeah, it, you, you really like rejection, whether you're, you know, asking a girl out and she says no, you go, okay, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll change it. So the same with fly fishing. If it's not working and the fish have told you they're not going to eat it, well, then you've got to change. Other than that, you persist with your, your fly that you've already got on, and most of it is about presentation. So often if that fish won't eat that fly, it's because you've already scared him and he knows something's wrong, and he, he's very cautious, and he might not eat anything. So uh, it's all about presentation. Do a good presentation, they're more likely to eat it than not. Can I put you on the spot? You said you generally use six flies. If you only had three to choose from for the rest of your life, what would they be? A Adam's parachute, which is, without confusing everybody, mayfly. They're the really cool-looking um uh, little insects that you'll see flying around on rivers. So it's a mayfly, and I use an Adam's parachute. Every fish in the world, if it all gets too hard, just tie that on, cast it out, and the fish will eat it. And it doesn't matter whether you're in South America, New Zealand, or up on, on the Goulburn, they'll eat an Adam's parachute. Uh, a little pheasant tail nymph with a tungsten bead, if we need to get down under the surface, that's gold. Every fish will just eat it because most of the Let's call them bugs, but the, the, the like nymphs, so bugs under the, the surface live under rocks. They're all like a dark brown colour the closer they get to, to swimming up to the surface. So, and that's when the trout eat them. So a brown colour like that. And then when you're fishing a lake, I use a fly called a, um, uh, it's a damsel type fly. So it's called a magoo. And it's a little fly that's about two inches and it imitates like a little bait fish or a damsel. And that'll catch just about every fish in the lake. So, yeah, there's three. Gav, I'm 
not going to be rude to you, but we've definitely used uh, the trout quota today in my in, in my book here, Patrick. We're going to have to push into a little bit of salt water here. What, <laughs> it's, done, it's, it's done a stash with me, the trout. What, what uh, Gav, take us through your best. I want to know, just before we let you go, your best saltwater species that you've caught on fly. Something that's not like, I guess, I got, both the, the, yeah. the most interesting. Yeah. What I really love, and most of like I do, like the salmon fishing, which is going mental at the moment out here in our bay, and that's really awesome because you can, again, very visual. You see the fish come up and eat your fly. That's really good. But where we've done some pretty amazing things was in um, down in Florida on the tarpon. I didn't actually land oh, yeah. it, but the hookup, and that was pretty amazing and, and jumped off, and you go, wow, it all happened pretty quick. I wasn't sure what was going on. But it's in Christmas Island that I absolutely love, and bonefish are incredible. And then you get GTs, which is just like a, you know, your, your 20, 30-pound GTs that just almost pull you in. But by far my most incredible fish was a 11-and-a-half-foot sailfish that I got on a fly uh, about three years ago or four years ago now in um, Christmas Island. And that, that, that was almost an unfathomable catch in the salt. Like, I just couldn't believe it. It was incredible. So that one sticks in my mind, and I have that picture uh, hanging over my office at, in, in the shop because it's just incredible. Yeah, he's nearly he's nearly got me. Uh, I think it's, it's, a, always, a, it's <laughs> always got good, me on fly. It's always a good sign when you're measuring fish in feet. How big was it? Oh, it was yeah, a couple of pounds. <laughs> no, it was it was feet. It was in feet. Yeah. Hey, Gav, yep. we really appreciate your time on Real Adventures this morning. Uh, for those out there that are interested in getting into fly fishing www.hurleysflyfishing.com.au for more information from Gav and his team. He'll be more than happy to chat to you and talk all things fly fishing. Gav, thanks for your time this morning. Pleasure. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Aaron. It's my, my pleasure to be on. And, uh, yeah, yeah. hopefully we can get some, uh, some of the guys and girls into fly fishing and they'll love it and won't ever regret it. Red's Review for Club Marine. Insure your boat with Club Marine, Australia's leading provider of boat insurance. Call and ask for a PDS to see if this insurance is right for you. Now it's time for Red's Review for Club Marine. Yeah, Patrick, and it's another amazing product that Dometic have put out, and it's the Dometic Hub. It's fantastic, this. It is. It's, it's to explain it to uh, anyone that's listening, it's like a gazebo. And you can, that you can get from any sort of outdoor uh, camping store. So it's very similar to that. But this is super easy to set up and extremely convenient for just your regular use. So not just your normal camping where you bring the gazebo out or you've got people coming over for a barbie. You can use this. If you're sitting at the footy and whatnot, you can use it very, very easily and quickly. Uh, to set it up, it's literally as simple as pulling the plug out and pumping it up, which will only take a couple of minutes. So it's, it's air right around the outside of it, Pat. You don't have to have four people to stand there and walk the corners out, and then you've got your mate at the other end, go up, push up, pull down, and you get your fingers caught. So it's really easy like that. And, and I think the, when people hear blow-up tent or the, the blow-up hub, the whole thing isn't blow-up. It's basically replacing your tent poles with something that is just as stable but it will not snap so we've seen some horrific weather over the last uh, week or so they will not snap so they're far more durable the products are of, of the highest quality so you can trust that in any weather there's nothing that's going to go tweak and it's going to keep you 
dry and safe and sound. And you can also use it freestanding, but what I really like about the product, Pat, is it actually has zip-on connections, which tunnels sort of up to your car. So when I'm sitting at the footy uh, with Finn, and the reason that I bought one of these was because literally sitting at the footy, watching, I love going out and watching the local footy, I can have Finn, and the, and the weather's crap this time of the year, but you can put the walls up, and you're still sitting outside watching the footy. You're not sitting in the grandstand, and you can have your nice quiet beer down there. So that's what I like it the, the most about it, and it is only 13 kilo, so you're not there trying to pack a gazebo around like you are, you not, you're just not going to carry a gazebo around. So no. 13 kilo, extremely small, and the PVC shelter base is really important for me when you've got a 90 kilo Great Dane with uh, massive nails. <laughs> I thought you were going to say when you've got Finn. Well, he's a psycho. He, he's as much a He is an absolute well. idiot. <laughs> so that, our review today is the Dometic Hub, and they retail between sort of $600 to $700. That is Red's review for Club Marine. That was Red's review for Club Marine. Need insurance for your boat or jet ski? Get a quote from Club Marine, Australia's leading provider of boat insurance. Call or search Club Marine to find out more. Ask for a PDS to see if this insurance is right for you. You're listening to Real Adventures with Patrick Dangerfield and Aaron Hadgood. Welcome back to Real Adventures. It's time for Red's Tip. There's been a lot of, too many incidents, Patrick, on the water around the country and I say country, not here, wherever you are. It's around the whole country yep. as of late. And a lot of them have been very avoidable. So I'm just going to put a little tip out there. And a bit of a reminder as such, uh, you need to start, when you're going fishing anywhere around the country, don't just check the weather as such, as in what's coming for the day. You need to understand where you're fishing. And what I mean by that, for an example... Well, you might fish Queenscliff and then go and drive 40 kilometres in the boat and you, all of a sudden it's a completely different... Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really critical point as well. Yeah, you need to check where you're actually going to be fishing. But also, the big one that I've got is, this is the best example I could find. If I've got a, I come up with 15 knot, say 15 knot suddenly, Pat, and a lot of people these days go out in your 15 knot suddenlies. If you go out at Queenscliff and you fish the incoming tide, it is going to be beautiful at Queenscliff. 15 knot suddenly, tiny white cap, you can nearly have the kids out there. That's Because the wind and tide are going together. But if you've got 15 knots... And then you've got the outgoing, then the tide starts going out, and that southerly wind, it actually makes it extremely rough and crap when you're out there. So, whenever you're traveling, talk to your tackle store and actually ask him what it's going to be like out there, or message someone because it can be easily avoided having someone hit their head on the boat, be in a place where they don't want to be, or whatnot. Something that I think you should have on every boat, and I know that certain boats don't have to have it with distances they're going to go offshore, more than two nautical miles, is an EPIRB. I believe it should be placed on every single boat, and also it should be at a convenient spot. So my one is placed roughly around my knee height as a dri- I'm driving the vessel, as standing there driving the steering wheel, picture that, and it's roughly at my knee, and it's literally just a pull-out clip that my EPIRB's down in my hand, or any sort of distress beacon. You need to, So that there will tell basically any res- uh, rescuers where you actually are. And just a simple one, I'm not, I'm not all for always and wearing a life jacket the whole time you're out while you're out fishing. It's uncomfortable. They are annoying. But wear them at the right times. If it gets rough, put it on. If you have to wear one by law and under a 4.8-metre boat or whatnot, just wear the bloody thing. There's so many times I see people with tinnies out there that aren't wearing it. There's a reason you have to wear it. And also, when you're crossing a bar and you're approaching it and it looks calm and your mate goes, oh, I'll put your life jacket on and you don't do it, just throw it on. It takes two seconds to put on when you're crossing the rip or the river because, like I said, I nearly come unstuck that time. We had jackets on, thankfully, but if just just put your life jacket on. Don't wear it all the time. Like, I'll, like if, you, if you're uncomfortable and you're sticking by the law, but when any at heightened risks, put your life jacket on. Beautiful work. Almost an early gaff. That's interesting because the flying gaff 
this week is actually you. It you is. you passed on a rod during the week to a to a young <laughs> four year old. Four year old. You were doing a guide, and you ended up in the drink. Do you just want to enlighten us quite quickly, Aaron? Yeah. So no, I was I just finished a guide. I was a mate was at a ramp, and Seamus and his son, and he was there, and he said to me, "His battery was flat." And I did the right thing. I was going out to do a bit of work stuff. So I just jump on with me with your son. Let's go for a bit of fun. We jumped out. Comes on my boat. And all of a sudden, I catch a whiting. I'm letting the young fella wind it in. And I run my whiting with no drag. Aggressive fisherman. No drag. Whiting don't get away. Come to me. <laughs> Hence why it's in your bag right now. But it comes, as it coming up, the whiting's coming up. Uh, sorry, whiting was coming up and a squid followed it. And I said to the young fella, keep it in there. Look at the squid. I'll get the squid for you and I'll catch it. So meanwhile, I'm going down to get the squid jig out of the side. To, oh, I had it already on a hand line. I drop it in the water. Sure enough, this whiting, like I said, no drag, screams off, rips my brand new reaction. I think they're about $780. My brand new Stratic, they're about $390, I think. Added, so over $1,000 straight out of this poor four-year-old's hands. I'm standing there. It was that hot Friday. Actually, it was a week before. I launched over my snapper racks. Don't know how I jumped like Mike, but I jumped over it. <laughs> I, in, a tide, in the tide, I somehow spun down, no goggles on in seven metres of water, and I found this bloody rod on the bottom. <laughs> so I don't know how I did it, but I got it, swam up. I passed the rod up to his, his father, and he got up there and passed the rod, and he goes, oh, the fish is still on there too. <laughs> so meanwhile, I'm soaking wet. It was actually that one hot day that we had. It was 32 degrees. It was actually bloody, bloody nice getting in the water, but I was completely dressed, shorts, T-shirt, and popped up so I'll accept the gaff. what is it about blokes that they you will not move when you sit on your couch and at speed at best walking pace around the house but you lose a rod over the side of the boat uh, and you are moving quicker than you're saying bolt I'm, I'm going to be an arrogant prick here too I didn't even pay for the bloody rod so why the hell would I jump into water and get it <laughs> what an idiot you get a few freebies every now and then hey <laughs> thanks for your company this morning on really Ventures. We'll do it all again next week. We'll see you then. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.